Hi, it's Pete Price Extra, and I was overwhelmed to interview Simon Weston, talking about the trauma of being a soldier, his injuries, religion, extremism. He's a fascinating man doing an evening with Simon Weston, touring this country. But I was very privileged. So have a listen to Simon Weston on P Price Extra. What an amazing man he really is. Ladies and gentlemen, I've got a fascinating man on um, the radio right now, which I'm really, really, really excited about. Uh, and I cannot believe the man has lived in Liverpool. I've never, ever met Simon Weston before. Hello, Simon. Good afternoon. Welcome to the programme. My pleasure, thank you. So, you're doing a tour, my word, wow. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly not something that I thought I'd ever be doing before I got injured when I was in the army, that's for sure. It's, um, it, 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 it takes a different sort of set of disciplines to, to do it, but yeah, it's fun. It's a lot of fun travelling up and down the country. Um, tiring. I, <laughs> I realise just how tiring it is for other people who do their shows. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun, though. What made you do it? I mean, because it's a nerve-wracking thing. Yeah, it is nerve-wracking, but um, I just think that sometimes when people ask you if you'd like to have a go at something, um, if your first instinct isn't to say no straight away, then you should give it a long, hard think and, and give it a go. Um, I, I quite like going on stage and doing it. It's um, <coughs> You get a lot of um, interaction from the audience, you know, I love I love the feedback you get from when people laugh or when you get a big intake of breath when you say something that either shocks or um, you know it just amazes people really uh, because there's there's nothing you can read in a book that's going to actually tell you that what it's really like or when yeah. you hear it spoken about by people who've lived it and been there. Let's talk about your Welsh accent first of all. Where are you from? <laughs> I'm from a small village called Nelson. In South Wales, uh, it's near Merthyr Tydfil. That's probably the best um, indication of where it is. Are you ready for this? I live up here, lived here all my life. I'm adopted, but I come from Merthyr Tydfil. Good gracious. Nanty well, Gwyn- Nanty Street in jo- um, uh, is it Georgetown? Um, can't remember where my nan is, but Nanty Gwynna Street. I always remember that. All oh, right, okay. Well, my grandfather was from Merthyr Tydfil, so nice. uh, yeah. And as a working comic, I've died on my backside a few times down in South Wales. <laughs> I think everybody's got their own graveyard of where they've been. <laughs> Simon, I've got to ask, where would your life have had gone if you hadn't have had that dreadful, dreadful problem that changed your life completely on the cigar hunt? Yeah, I, I think if you if you look at it when you're 20, you ask me to go to university um, if they're doing anything related to their degree. They probably aren't. And when you think about what service people have to go through in their training, it's probably the equivalent of working as hard as you have to when you get a degree. Um, I never thought that I'd be doing what I'm doing now, but I certainly had plans to stay in the military at least for another six years uh, till I was about to the 27, 28. And then I was going to, you know, make my choices, depending on what rank I'd have got. I'd like to have thought I'd have stayed in the army for a good time, um, enjoyed the lifestyle very much. Um, 
But you just you just don't know, do you? I mean, I was 20 years of age, I had the world in front of me, and all of a sudden, yeah. it quite literally altered in a flash. You know, it's nothing more you can do then. you just got to try and survive and come up with a plan for the rest of your life. And I remember seeing what they call a resettlement officer, laughingly a resettlement officer, and he said to me, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And I went down the route of, you know, saying, well, I want to be in the army, play rugby, drink beer, chase girls. And not necessarily in that order, but <laughs> you know, but the, the the fact of the matter was, we we did this dance for about three years, and he was like a careers officer, if you like, somebody who was going to help me find a new life. And yeah. he he just said to me at the end of it, he said, "Well, as far as I'm concerned, you're totally unemployable." And I thought, "Thank you for that damning indictment yeah. and words to that effect." Um, and I just thought, you, "You can't write me off." If I'm not prepared to write me off, you can't. And I was just, I was just so, so taken aback. I was so angry as well. Yeah. You know, he, he never got to know me in three, three and a half years. I was only ever Western, never became Simon. And um, and I just thought I can't be doing this. So you know, I, I've gone out there and I've created businesses and companies and written books and you know, and do a lot of motivational and after dinner speaking. Um, and I just think, you know, he can kiss my nose, my shiny white nose, because the skin on my nose comes off my bum. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> I hate to think of him doing his back. <laughs> Tell me, did you ever see him again? No, no, no. Um, I have no desire to see him, you know, uh, because he met me so many times and he worked in the hospital. I suspect that he's he's seen different things in the newspapers or possibly on TV, um, and he'll have an inkling that um, my life has turned out very well and very successful, despite people like him. That's amazing. Right, I'm talking. It's going to be an evening with Simon Weston. Uh, I've got to give him his title, CBE plus all the other titles. Uh, he's coming to Par Hall in Warrington on Friday the 13th of September, October the 6th at uh, the Albert Halls in Bolton and the Brinley on the 22nd of October in Runcorn. And as we know, the Brinley's our closest one, but it's a very intimate theatre and it's going to be great. They're the best theatres, aren't they, to work rather than the big ones? Yeah, I mean the big ones are great if you if they're full, but um, you know the the intimate ones I like because you actually you're talking to people, you actually see them, you feel that they're in the room, and you can see to the back of the room, um, and you see faces. You know, as you know yourself, you you trod the board, so you know when you you look into an audience, you can't always see the back of the room, but eventually when your eyes get used to the, the dark or what have you, you, you can see faces in there. Um, and it's great. I, I love all of that. I love all of that. And I love meeting people after the show, you know. Um, and there's always somebody got a story to tell you. There's always somebody that knew somebody you knew. Yeah, or yeah. There was somebody that was in the Falklands. And I, I remember being in Warrington a good while ago now. And um, I met the sister of the guy who was attached to us. He was a medic attached to my unit. Um, sadly, he didn't make it home. And I met the sister. And, you know, I, I can never never forget this guy, Farrell. Um, um, Scouse Farrell. You know, that's what we called him. And he was a funny little man. He was really, really funny. Mm. Um, and he, we, we become quite good friends in a very short period of time. Um, but, you know, sadly gone and missed. 
we um, uh, had a show that we took to the Falklands just after the war. Um, so we were based on Ascension Island and then flew over in the Hercules. Um, and you were the topic of conversation while I was over there all the time. It was it was amazing the impact that what happened to you um, uh, made on everybody. That's that's um, the first time I've ever heard of that. But you know, it, it's it's not something I particularly set out to do to have that sort of impact on anybody. I just set out to try and survive and then live and try to gain a lifestyle and live a lifestyle that I hopefully would be able to sustain for the rest of my life. Um, that was the plan, and it's far exceeded what I thought and what I hoped for. It's become a, a much bigger project and more exciting and more frightening than I ever thought it possibly could be. And when I say frightening, it's frightening in a good way. You know, you're challenging yourself, you're, you're, you're making things happen. Um, sometimes it's very much outside of your realm of comfort. And, uh, you know, but I, I enjoy that. I like being frightened mm. because it gets the adrenaline going, it gets you being excited about life and your potential. Simon, Welsh Gardner, um, you were severely injured. When you talk on stage, do you live every moment again? Is it painful and hard to talk about it? No, not so much what happened to me, but um, the impact I had on my family. That That's hard to live with because you see the drinking that I got involved in. You, see, you know, my mother talks about me dealing with mental health issues, although she doesn't sort of phrase it like that, but you listen, and that's painful to listen to because I knew I put everybody through a hell of a time, but I suppose it was the only way I could do it and, and get back to being me or the, the best version of me that I could be compared to what I used yeah. to be. So it was it was horribly difficult for my family and for my friends. Um, you know, and your friends are hugely important in all of these things. Because without them, you don't have normality. You have your family, but if you come from a loving, caring family, they will always love you. Uh, but your friends don't have to hang around. And my friends did. They hung around for a hell of a long time. you know. But as you get older, and you grow apart, and people travel distances where they go and live somewhere else. But you know that's the way it was. But I, I, I did put people through it. And, and when you see the film footage of that, because we show quite a bit of film footage, um, just so that you, you don't have to talk about some of it because it's, it's easier to show um, pictures because they tell a thousand words. Absolutely. But, um, you know, and, and that's really important that we do that. But, um, you know, we, we, we try to keep it as light as possible in places. Um, it's not always that possible because you, you end up with, um, you end up trivialising what happened and you can't trivialise the lives of those those incredible people and those they're my friends, you know, they they're people that I cared a lot about. Um, you know, and and, and I, I really can't take their memories for granted that way. So I have to I have to treat it with as much reverence as I can and I won't belittle that memory. But I, I do try to lighten it and yeah. laugh a lot. And, and I'm on stage with a guy called David Fitzgerald who works for the BBC down in in Devon, in Plymouth. And he's hilarious. He is absolutely hilarious. And we spend an awful lot of the time on stage laughing. Um, he's, he's got such a rapier wit. You know, I, I think people are 
in the northwest will absolutely love him. It's interesting. I've done this phoning now for 38 years and I've had many soldiers, many forces uh, from the RAF, the Navy, everything. Nobody understands and nobody, whatever you say, whatever you uh, show on screen, nobody could ever understand the traumas that you as the members of forces, the armed forces, go through, can they? Um, no, I think it's like an awful lot of things in your life. Um, you 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 have to have been there. Um, you're going to need to know what it's like to be in a shell hole if you've been in one under fire, or you're going to need to know what it's like to be patrolling in Northern Ireland and come under fire from somebody who's hiding around a corner, you know, or hiding somewhere or planting a bomb. You're going to need to know what it's like if you've been there. Um, and that's why a lot of people don't try to talk about that side of it so much. You know, people say the the previous generation of the Second World War and the, the Korean veterans, they don't talk about it. Really, how can they talk about it? Because you can't even begin to understand what it's like. And to try and explain it to you would take forever if, if it was ever possible. So they only ever talk to themselves about what's gone on. And most of the time, most people talk about the funny things and eating food and having a drink and sleeping arrangements and what it was like to try and get a wash or stuff like that when there's no water. You know, all the trivial things that people talk about a lot, they don't mind talking about that, but the nasty side of it, well, how do you explain it to somebody, you know, seeing somebody with an egg blown off or seeing somebody with a bullet wound through his body? I mean, it's very, very difficult to try and explain it. And if you've never seen it, then yeah. you can never actually understand the pain that people go through when they witness it. Is there anything you won't talk about on stage? I, I, I never go into full detail because that just really is is gratuitous as far as I'm concerned. I think the imagination is more powerful than the actual spoken word in some cases. Um, so I don't go into the full, the full absolute detail of things because, first of all, the audience has done nothing to me to, to deserve to be put into that position of where they could get nightmares. And, and ultimately, they they haven't earned the right to know that intimate and personal detail that I won't even share with families of those people who didn't make it home. So, um, you know, there are two reasons for for not doing it. But I, um, you know, I try try to go in and cover as much ground as I can. You know, um, but there's there's just when you, you you get to the incident itself, I I talk about it. I tell the truth, and I'm very accurate with what I talk about, but I don't go into the finite detail. And I suppose some people would, would relish to know that part because I suppose in, in the heart of most people, we've got a little bit of a ghoul in us, yeah. you know. Um, but I, I, won't, I won't cover that ground. I, I've only ever done it once. And, um, and in fact, the last time I was on stage with, with Fitz, um we we did cover a bit of ground that I had never covered with him before um, because we didn't have a certain amount of film footage. It, it just wouldn't work. So um, we got all the other films working, but the first one just wouldn't work. So I had to cover ground that I, I didn't feel comfortable covering yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. But I did, you know. Um, but I, I've never, I've never ever stood up and talked fully about what it was like to be in there because I just don't think it's right. I'm talking to Simon Weston, CBE, who is coming to the Brinley on the 22nd of October in Runcorn. And it is a 
brilliant theatre to, to, to see this man because it is so intimate. I've got to ask, and I hate asking this question, but I've got to ask, is uh, or has there been any time when you thought, no, I don't want to stay here, I've had enough? Yeah, yeah, there's been, there's twice. Um, I was on board the hospital ship and I just to get my eyesight and they were having to put what they call saline pads on my eyes to keep them moist, stop them from my eyeballs from drying up because my eyelids had gone. And um, they were pouring this water from a thing called an undine, which is a bit like a it's um it's a bit like a Spanish drinking bottle, you know, where you put your thumb on the top and slowly release it and you can get the fluid from the spout. Well, that's what they used to wash my eyes out with because um, obviously I had, I had problems with my eyes. And um, and I, I was just having so much done and I was in so much pain and so much discomfort. I just felt that I wanted to fall asleep and, and not wake up. So thus I fell asleep and really at that point didn't care whether I woke up, but I did. I did wake up and um, there was one or two sort of ghostly happenings that um, I won't try to explain on the radio, but yeah, just a few ghostly things that happened. And strangely enough, from the, the, the time that those things happened, I never felt that I would die, not, not from my injuries anyway. I never thought that I would die, and I just got stronger and stronger from there on in. And then there was a time when I was home and I was out of hospital for a couple of weeks, maybe a month or two months or something before I was going to go back in for more surgery. And I, I had I had eaten and drunk myself to a position where I was I was hugely obese, and um, I I just I had no vision of the future, and I was just getting more and more depressed. And nobody was treating us for depression or PTSD. There wasn't really much appetite to discover if there was such a thing as PTSD with us. And um, yeah, I did did almost make an attempt to to kill myself. Yes, wow. um, you know, but. It's it's an often trodden road now for a lot of people. You know, you hear about these things all the time. It's it's not as shocking as it once did sound. Um, but you know, people saw on the outside that I was this happy, gregarious guy. Just because I was injured, I was still living my life to the full. But you know, they, they say the tears of a clown, and um, yeah, I, I was struggling with life. But fortunately, it didn't happen. It didn't work, and. Uh, here I am today, all these years on, father of three, grandfather of two, um, and life is just so very, very exciting. I'm so glad that the depression didn't really take hold. You know, I can only begin to imagine what it must be like for those people who are clinically depressed yeah. um, and have to be under constant treatment and supervision, because for those people, it doesn't matter what time of day it is. They don't see the they don't see the sunshine. They don't see the morning come round. They don't see the uh, listen to the birds singing because they just everything is is dark. And I feel very very sad for those people because you know it, it is an awful place to be depression and and, and you, you you know we mustn't take it too lightly. We mustn't treat it with triviality. You, you know you, people must get the help that they deserve, especially if they've got depression and PTSD, which can be a double whammy. Yeah. Simon, is religion in your life? Is there any room for it? Um, there's room for it. I just don't know if I if I believe. Um, I don't understand religion at all. Um, I, I never. I, 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 
go to church and things like that in chapel before I got injured, primarily probably because the military said that I had to. Um, so it's not a democracy. You're ordered on church grade, off you go. Uh, but after seeing the things I've seen, and then the two closest men to me in my life at that time was my, my stepfather and my grandfather. They both passed away within five days of each other, and I just thought, you know, really? You know, it, it they, they just sort of became that big lapse. And I've never really believed in religion since. Um, you know, I, I will... I will always honour people's right to worship wherever they want to worship and follow whichever um, prophet they wish to follow. Um, We all have one God, so we're led to believe, but they're just different prophets, you know. Um, So I've just never, I've never actually caught on to it and all these different books and texts and things that people misuse and misquote and misinterpret and and bring evil to each other. I, I just don't get it anymore. I can't. The more we, we grow in this world, the more information we have, the better our judgment can be. And for me, my judgment is that I just can't see as how all those things happened. I just don't see as how, you know, people walking on water could ever have happened. <laughs> Not even going back in the days where people imagined all these other things to have happened. Um, so I, I just don't, I don't get it. So I, no, I'm not religious. It's interesting you say about your dad and your granddad. I uh, wasn't particularly religious, but what I did have, I turned away when they took my mother, and that was years ago. And I felt, no, no, I'm not having that. I'm not having that. So I, I once again can relate to you over that. Yeah, no, I, I suppose I want to believe because you know I see the joy and comfort it gives so many people. <laughs> Yeah. And as long as it's a joy and a comfort that it gives people, yeah. that's great. That's absolutely great. It's when people use it as a as a crutch, or or when people use it as a a, a log to beat you with, then that's when I find it. Great, I find great difficulty. You know, when you look at things like ISIS, who claim to be religious, but they're so evil. And when you see things that have happened in the name of of different. Um, prophets, you know, from Muhammad to Jesus to Abraham to David, you know, people carry these different prophets. Yet, um, they, they they seem to use them for for all the wrong reasons, rather than unifying people and bringing people together and love and harmony and happiness. You know, if, if that's the case, you know, then they're misusing it, misinterpreting it, and and that. To me, is the problem that I find with religion. Primarily, it's the earthly side of it. The people that that supposedly follow religion are never quite as religious mm. as you you wish they would be. Doing your autobiography, did you find it cathartic? Yes. Oh, yeah. Be, being able to write about your fears, write about your history. I mean, remembering your childhood and things like that when you were incredibly happy. If you were lucky enough to be a very happy child, and I was. Um, yeah, because you go into that childish place and you start laughing to yourself about things that you remember that surrounded that incident. You know, even though you're writing a book, you can't expand on everything. But in your own mind, you go, God, I can remember doing that, remember this, remember that. That's that's hugely funny and very uplifting. And going through the stories and remembering things and talking about people that you loved and people who affected your life positively. 
Um, yeah, all of those things I, I did. I, I thoroughly enjoyed writing the book. Don't think I enjoyed rereading it several times because you go through it um, to to make sure that it's in the right chronological order. And you have to make sure that the facts that you've had put down haven't been misinterpreted by anybody that's come through to to reread it and proofread it. And some passages get rewritten slightly. Um, But you've, you've got to get in there to do to make sure the detail is correct. And that's painstaking. Yeah. That is painstaking. It's like drawing teeth. It is. Oh, so I, I didn't enjoy that that part of it, but all the other aspects, yeah. And sitting down with somebody um, to help you write the book, um, because I'm not, I'm not the greatest writer in the world. I have a great imagination, great thought processes, and a, you know, a, an interesting history. And I enjoy that side of it, but I'm not the greatest. Put pen to paper. So yeah. I need somebody else to do that side for me. Well, if it's any consolation, my autobiography was um, uh, ghost-written as well. So we rel- I relate to so much of what you're saying. It, it, it really is quite incredible. I have to go back to the dreadful thing that happened to you. How did you cope with the struggle over your injuries? I mean, looking in the mirror, seeing yourself, looking down at your body. I, I mean, that, that in itself could have pushed you over the edge. Yeah, it could have, but... As as time went on, you know, I I liked myself. I really liked who I was before I got injured. And as time has gone on, I, I learned to like myself again. Um, and I, I genuinely do like who I am. You know, there are days when I don't like me, but, you know, that's fine. Um, but I genuinely like who I am, my contribution to life, the things that I've done with my life. I think I've done a lot more than an awful lot of other people have done or would ever do. So, you know, I like that side of my life. Um, so I, I like me. I, I genuinely do. So whatever my appearance is, I can't change my face. I can't change the skin or the scars. Um, I can always do my best to look as smart and as tidy and as well-kept as I possibly can. Um, but all the other things are outside of my control. So I'm not going to get too wound up by by what I can't control. Um, I'll I'll just focus on what I can do something about, what I can control, and and that's really all you can do. Um, I don't get wound up by big things, you know. Big things happen, and you, you're never going to stop them. You, they're so far out of your control. Little things that I can do something about, they're the things that get to me more than anything else. Small things, stupid things. Things that could have been prevented, and that, that's um, and that's just the way that I am. You know, I, I just have to, I just have to take the lessons in my life and say, you know, the big things, you know, just learn to live with it, ride with it, roll, roll with the blows. But when you first see yourself disfigured, and you wonder, will will you ever be able to have a relationship? Will you ever have girls that will ever be interested in you? And I was very fortunate, but you know, when you meet the right girl, as I did meet a girl in Liverpool. Um, the fact of the matter is people are very forgiven if you've got a sense of humour, if you address the world with an, a certain amount of intelligence um, and, and sincerity. People do appreciate sincerity and, uh, and and certainly you have to put a little splash of humility in there um, you know, because nobody likes over-arrogant people and nobody likes 
to to a confident a person. You know, you, you just have to have the right blend. Unfortunately for me, I seem to have that. It's not something that I particularly work hard on. It's just something that's there. Um, but I think the, the liking yourself is hugely important. You're an incredibly honest man, Simon. You're, you're a joy to interview. Um, and ladies and gentlemen, Brindley uh, Runcorn, 22nd of October. It sounds as if it's going to be a remarkable, a remarkable evening. I won't take much more of your time, but I, I really don't want to let you go because I find you fascinating. Children's books. I love the way you throw that one in. <laughs> yeah, well, it all came from... Um... A milkman, a friend of mine, um, sadly no longer with us, Mike Williams, but Mike the Milk. Um, his father started the milk round because of the miners, and the miners couldn't get milk first thing in the morning. You know, there wasn't the infrastructure in place to provide milk to people in the way that, you know, we have shops open almost 24 hours a day now. Um, but at that point in time, he his father started delivering milk with a horse and cart. Um, and then in the winter, he used to take the tractor around with the milk for the miners. Um, and it just started. He started off with 24 customers. And within two or three weeks, he had sort of five, 600 customers because everybody wanted the milk to be delivered at four o'clock in the morning because the miners were going off to work at five o'clock. So, um, and that really was how his stories and the stories he tells you about all the local people that you know in the villages because Mike then ended up having like ten or 15,000 customers. And um, he, he used to tell me stories about people and people who lived in very tough um, homes and people without a lot of money. And But you know, they, they just had no idea what was going on, some of them. And he just tell, told me stories. And I thought, you know, the milkman played such a big part in a lot of people's lives, um, probably more than you know, the postman or the policeman or any of those people, the milkman was the man who came round every morning. And if your milk was on the doorstep from the day before, then he would know that something was up because people wouldn't order milk. They'd let him know that they were going away for a couple of days or something. So he wouldn't deliver milk and it wouldn't be wasted because people didn't have money to waste. And he would, you know, he helped and saved an awful lot of people because of that diligence, because of that vigilance and, because he, you know, he, he told us, I used to work for Mike as a milk boy when I was a school kid. And, uh, you know, we were all told if the milk is there, if something's wrong, tell him and he'll deal with it. Uh, and, and there was a lot of people. I never helped in that circumstance. I never had that fortune to help anybody like that. But there was one or two of the guys did because of an old lady had fallen down the stairs or an old man had fallen yeah. in the house over the rug and hit, broken the hip. Um so that that was great, you know. But they used to deliver potatoes and pop and squash and bread and all sorts because they were going on the round. So it was just as economical to have that stuff on the on the bread round as well. Um, milk as well, so, it's yeah. ca- it's getting boring. This Simon, I used to be a milk boy with Wally on the milk round when I was at school. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is ridiculous. I, I cannot believe I've never met you. Two more questions. One, I've got to ask, of all the awards, and you've had so many awards and so many uh, accolades, which one means more? Um, I remember going back in the day when I lived in Liverpool. I got, and I don't know how the list was compiled, but um, 
I was I was told that I'd been voted in the top 100 Scousers. Now this is going back in the in the 90s, and I'd been voted in the top 100 Scousers. I came 75th, I think it was, one behind a dead horse. <laughs> 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 Red rum <laughs> And to finish off, the Western spirit. You must be proud of that. I was very proud of what it did and what it achieved and very very proud to have worked with a guy called Ben Harrison and Paul Aginsky. Um you know, but it, it all went down the Swanee because of the credit crunch and a few other things. Um and that's very, very sad because the people of Liverpool really took me to their heart and, you know, they really took the organisation to its heart. You know, they took ownership in many ways. Um, but we were so broken up when it when it went down. But these things happened. Um, but we achieved an awful lot. Um, we, we were able to, to make a difference in an awful lot of young people's lives. Uh, and a lot of people went on to it to excel in areas they probably never thought they could have. Yeah. And uh, we'd like to think that we played a small part in them having the confidence to go forward and search out their goals. You know, all the rest of it was down to them because of their own talents. But we played a, a helping hand in, in giving them that confidence to believe in themselves, to believe that they can achieve whatever they want to and that nobody in life is better than you. They may be better at things, but they're not better than you. Yeah. You know, and as long as you go through life understanding you're not better than anybody else either, apart from those people who allow you to because they're, they're criminals or they're evil, um, then you're better by, by just sheer nature. But the fact of everything else, nobody's better or worse than anybody else, just better at things, whether that be running, jumping, singing, you know, acting or, or writing or doing English, maths, physics, whatever it may be. But people are only better at things. And, and I think those are the values we gave people, you know, to believe in themselves, respect everybody until they don't earn, or they haven't earned your respect and don't deserve it. You know, um, we, 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 we helped instill a lot of values in a lot of young people that had lost their way. For whatever reason, you know, a lot of them came from very good homes, but they just lost their way. They were a bit fuddled in their own minds. And they just needed that extra support from somebody else that that wasn't seen as a parental figure. It was just more, more or less seen as that friend. You know, youth clubs used to provide that in one way. Um, and then we, in wisdom, people got rid of those. And youngsters found themselves, you know, making it all up on a street corner and getting into trouble. And I think, you know, in part, that's something that's going wrong in society today with young people. They need to have somewhere to go and they need to have younger adults who are the same age, or well, a lot older, probably 25, 30, but are close enough to their age. And they, they need to have those people in their lives who can offer them advice without judgment. And uh, I think that helps tremendously because, you know, I don't think things have really changed that much. People carried knives or did whatever they did years ago. Um, you know, and it's, it's not a new phenomenon. It's just the fact that it's happening so regularly. Um, and I, I think we've, we've lost that communication between the older people and the younger people, I think that side of it has broken down very badly. And, and I think we were able to communicate with our youngsters on Western Spirit to help them sort of have that trust and that ability to come and talk to us and find out things and answers that perhaps they just didn't feel comfortable talking to their family about. 
Ladies and gentlemen, uh, this gentleman has taken my breath away today. September the 13th, Friday, Par Hall in Warrington. October the 6th, the Albert Halls in Bolton. And right by us, the 22nd, the Brinley of October the 22nd, the Brinley in Roncorn. An evening with Simon Weston, CBE. Uh, Simon, I have been bowled over by the interview. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Not at all. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much indeed.